Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Bev Thomas on her debut novel, A Good Enough Mother. Bev Thomas was a clinical psychologist in the NHS for many years. She currently works as an organisational consultant in mental health and other services. And Bev's debut novel, which we're going to talk about today, is A Good Enough Mother. Bev, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to be here. So how would you describe the novel? Um, Well, it's... um, I I mean, I did work, as you say, um, in the field for quite some years. So in in a way, I'd been reluctant, I think, to set a book in that world. But I think it's probably that old um, saying, write about what you know, and it seemed to kind of work for me. Um, So the world is very authentic, but it is about a trauma therapist, a psychotherapist, who is fantastic at her job. Uh, Ruth Hartland, she is at the top of her game. She runs, she's the director of a unit. And she's um, excellent clinically. Unfortunately, um, her personal life tells a different story in that she has twins, twin uh, boy and girl, and the 17-year-old boy, Tom, is missing. So she's a woman in grief. She's a mother who's grieving. She doesn't know where her son is. um, And she's continuing to work. He disappeared 18 months ago. And the story really kicks off when she sees a new referral. She goes to the waiting room to collect a new referral. And as she looks down the corridor and sees the person, she thinks for one beautiful but then terrible moment um, that it's her son. Um, And really, it isn't him. And then it kind of rolls out from there and things start to unravel for her. So tell us about the uh, Ruth's Clinic. They have there's a particular method that they're using to, you know, to counsel people. Tell Tell us what they're doing. Yeah, so, I mean, there's lots of different types of therapy and this particular type of therapy is drawn from the psychoanalytic tradition. So the particular feature of that um, 
I mean, there's a number of them, but one of the particular ones that is drawn out in the book is the concept and the notion of the transference. So that involves, there's something very significant that goes on between the patient or or, um, client and the therapist. And it's a space really where the client can project um, feelings that they may have that perhaps are drawn from previous relationships onto that therapist. Now, that um, involves the therapist being what's called a sort of blank slate, really, and not really bringing themselves into the room. And, of course, what goes wrong for my character, Ruth, is that, of course, she's bringing a lot into the room because as soon as she thinks that this new person looks like her, her son, things get very muddled for her. Um, so personal and professional boundaries aren't able to they just get very blurred so um I mean with that type of therapy it is really I I suppose that's one of the kind of fundamentals of it is that it is um looking at the relationship but it's also looking at sort of what isn't said so it's looking at the kind of unconscious things rather than something that's very very surface in front of you so it's a particular it's a particular methodology and I was very interested I mean I suppose one of the things that I was very keen on in writing this is that I think very often psychology or therapy is used in fiction as kind of more plot points or plot driven. I was very interested in exploring the actual methodology in the book so that the therapy is the story um, as opposed to it being a kind of add-on or a, or a plot device, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I want, I want to discuss that in a bit more detail in a minute. But first of all, um, just staying with the, some of the psychological ideas, um, the title itself yes. of of the novel. So a good enough mother, you know, refers on the surface to to Ruth and you know the the plot of the story of, yeah. around her, you know, family troubles. Um, but the good enough mother is also an idea, um, a psychological idea from a, a, a fellow called Donald Windicott. So uh, yeah. what is it? So so Winnicott has talked about. Um, I mean, it was a sort of groundbreaking idea, really, because I suppose what he was saying is that. Um, to be a good enough mother, it means that you have to allow your child to experience um, small, manageable frustrations in life. Um, so that obviously, while your child's a very small baby, you do need to attend to the child absolutely instantly because they're small and defenseless and, and, and tiny. But as they get older, they need to manage small amounts of frustrations in order that they are able to cope with the frustrations of life. So life is um, light and dark. It's full of joy and frustration. And and, I th- and his concept was that the good enough mother or the good enough parent enables a child through their childhood and upbringing to experience that so that they are equipped better to go through life um, into adulthood. Um, and I guess what I was trying to explore with the character of Ruth in this book is that because of her own um, issues, which are obviously touched on too in the book, her own childhood and her own difficulties and background, is that she she struggles to allow her son to be who he is. Um, I think one of the, I think it's, I'm probably not alone in saying this, is most parents at one time or another would say that it's incredibly challenging to see your child um, distressed or unhappy. But the kind of Winnicottian idea would be that you would bear that and allow them to experience those feelings and not rush to take them away um, or, or or deny them. And I guess what's going on for Ruth is because she struggles so much with that is that she can't bear it in her son Tom. Tom is kind of, um, 
He's sort of on the edge a little bit of society. He's not a great socialiser. He's a particular type of character who doesn't easily fit into groups. And he's very distinct from his twin sister, Carolyn. And so I suppose, in a way, um, the kind of twinship, as it were, um, highlights their differences even more. Uh, And I guess what Ruth finds unbearable is the fact that he does struggle, that he does find it difficult to fit in and be sociable and um, find his way in a in a friendship group and the fact that it becomes unbearable to her means that she kind of gets him to, to sort of do and fit in with things that really aren't him and the difficulty with that of course is that she is ultimately kind of not really seeing who he is not really not really seeing Tom with all his sort of um, gorgeousness and loveliness of, of, of who he is really so she's trying to sort of um, make him something he's not and I think that that is a constant tension that's sort of weaved through the book because obviously there's a dual narrative there's a kind of present when she's in her clinic seeing um, the new client Dan but we also have moves back and forth between um, the twins early life and growing up and trying to understand why, where he is, what's happened to him. Tell us a bit more about, as you said, structuring the, 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 the plot of the novel around the therapy. You've described it elsewhere as um, the novel is a, a psychological drama you yes. know, rather than a, a, a straightforward thriller. Yeah, I mean, I, I was very... Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I find, you know, some of the good sort of um, question and answer in detective books can be very psychological. Mm-hmm. And the kind of drama that unfolds from that. I mean, my experience of working in the room with people when I used to work as a clinician is that it is really, it can be very dramatic. It can be also full of drama, full of conflict, full of high emotions. It can also be very boring. You know, I think there's a whole kind of range of emotion depending on what your client might be bringing in the room. But I was very interested in really, really focusing closely in on that interplay between um therapist and client because I think that there's something quite gripping I think about what what can go on in the room and yes absolutely I mean I think it's a psychological drama and a and a very bad thing happens as opposed it as opposed to um a kind of plot driven um thriller I mean I had a very clear sense of what was going to happen but all of the events are rolled out through the psychology of the characters. I mean, it it felt very important to me that the characters made absolute psychological sense. And partly, obviously, that's drawn from what I used to do and what I still do in terms of my work is that it's very, I was very sort of obsessed by that, that, you know, people have to kind of make sense in what they do. So the drama and the plot has kind of come from the characters as opposed to the other way around. Well, let's talk about how you develop the characters in that way, though. And I, w- I, wanted to, I was going to ask you about Dan. Um, yeah. l- tell us something about who Dan is, first of all, and then perhaps let's talk about, you know, including everybody, how you've built up, the, you know, how yes. you've chosen to build up the characters. Well, Dan is a, he's a very tricky, he is a very tricky character. And I think, I mean, all of the characters and all of the clients in the book are entirely made up they're all creations from my imagination but I have to say if I was seeing somebody like Dan I would find him an incredibly tricky person to see he's very complex he finds it very difficult to trust people and I think that as we learn without I mean it's obviously I I have to be careful not to give too much away but there are some very difficult things in his own childhood which do then emerge which 
perhaps help us on to understand where he's at and what he's going through. But I, I guess in some ways, you know, what I wanted to set up from the beginning is that we have a therapist who has a son who is missing. So she's kind of looking for a son. And we also have um, on the same day uh, a new referral, a new client that turns up who is also, as it transpires, looking for a mother in some ways. So it's a kind of perfect storm, really, um, from page one. And while I think that the character Ruth knows and she knows exactly what she would say to a colleague to do, she knows exactly that she should probably um, refer him on to somebody else because of her own loss and void and, and grieving, it's something she doesn't do. She wants to see him too badly. And the other thing to say is this is, the novel is told from Ruth's perspective. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that decision because obviously what that means is, you know, this is Ruth's story and things again, we're not going to talk about what happens, but, yeah. you know, things yeah. go wrong from a, yeah. you know, from a clinical perspective yeah. for Ruth. But of course, we're only hearing her perspective on it. Yes, it's interesting. And I was very clear from the beginning. I didn't I didn't have a sort of there was never a moment where I thought I, I, I wanted to hear other people. And I think in a way I wanted to create something that was quite claustrophobic. And I think there is something that can go on in the room, which I think a couple of the scenes in the book, a number of chapters which are which are in the sort of therapy room are also quite claustrophobic. There is a sort of um, a real focus between two people in a room sitting very close together. Um, and I I think that partly writing it from her perspective also means that she is also very caught in her head. So as a reader, we are also caught in her head. And I think that what I really wanted to do, uh, and certainly the feedback I've had so far from people, seems to be that, you know, there are no easy answers. You know, I think there are lots of... I mean, I spoke to a, a woman who's currently practising as a therapist now, and she said, I read parts of this and I thought, uh, you know, I relate to this. I understand a line sometimes that one can cross. You know, I'm not talking about anything terrible that happening, but occasionally seeing people that do resonate with you in a way that you think, whoa, this this doesn't feel quite right. Um, so I think it's... I think I wanted to create that. I deliberately wanted to create that feeling of claustrophobia in the book, on the page, so that in a way the reader is also caught up in Ruth's dilemma rather than being on the outside looking in, if that makes sense. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Bev Thomas and we're talking about her debut novel, A Good Enough Mother. And Bev, you mentioned in the first half there that all of this is made up. Yeah. It's all of the characters are made up. But you have worked as a clinical psychologist yeah. for, for many years. And so obviously your experience in that work has sure. gone into writing this book. So perhaps we can talk about how. And specifically, I want to talk about, I guess, well, I guess the ethics of writing about mm. this sort of subject matter. How do you avoid writing about, you know, yeah. real instances, I guess? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think so. It's been a long time since I've worked as a clinician. I now work with staff teams um, who work in mental health and other services. So I'm kind of one step removed. But I, th- I think one of the things that I was also really passionate about when I when I started writing it is that my experience of working with clinicians has been extraordinary. I feel that in some ways I wanted to write something that really celebrates the amazing work that people do. So while, again, without giving too much away, you know, things don't go well for Ruth's in Ruth's world. I think I also wanted to open a door into that world and show people, you know, what people are doing on a day-to-day basis. And I think that sometimes we can look at the front of a newspaper and read about terrible stories that have happened and not actually think about how they might be recovering their lives and carrying on. So, my, as I say, my experience has been phenomenal in terms of the clinicians that I've worked with. And so I'm full of admiration, in a way, for the way that, that people work. So I guess there's a part of me that also wanted to really celebrate that work um, and particularly that, that model of therapy because that's the, one that I've, that's the one I've been trained in. So I suppose I've often read... Uh, books or seen films and it's a it's the therapy aspect is quite generic I was quite I was quite interested in really exploring this particular therapy in greater detail so in terms of your question I mean I think that what what's very real is my my interpretation of a working department I think there's um, a particular chapter in there that also talks about the stretched nature of the service and how difficult that is and that is absolutely my experience now I think mental health services are at crisis point so I think there was also something I wanted to say in the book about there's a vulnerability of people and at some level and I don't think it is just about resources I don't think we are meeting that need um, at the moment Um, so again I can't say too much about that particular chapter but my kind of ambition, I suppose, was to say some significant things about mental and psychological health and to talk about the work that people do. And the world is authentic. I mean, what I've tried to do through the characters is talk about things that happen. Um, so while some of those experiences and examples are quite extreme, because obviously the focus is on a trauma unit, so people are coming in having experienced a traumatic thing... You know, they are they are things that happen. Um, so I suppose in some ways I kind of think that it's very different if you're writing a kind of non-fiction book and you are doing case, case studies. That, I guess, is a whole other arena where you have to, I don't know, get permission or change the identity of people to such a degree that no one w- would be um, recognisable. I mean, I guess that, you know, that the clients in the book are, I think, really treated in a way that feels um, not just respectful, but I mean, just giving them an op- giving people an opportunity to talk about some of these really difficult things that have happened, I think is also just a way of having that dialogue about it. You know, it, it isn't, 
it isn't a particular type of person that ends up going to see a therapist. It could be any, anybody. And I think I want to go over this again because, I mean, you've just mentioned it, but I think it's, it's worth reiterating that, you know, the book does definitely cover the idea that, you know, no matter what a good job therapists are doing. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Ruth in particular here is dealing with, you know, she's got this fractious home life as well, which is, you know, crossing over with her work. Um, and in, you know, in, in some respects, obviously, that's that's a good demonstration of how, you know, humanising the therapist, yes. you know, showing that. Yeah. But the point is that, the you know, regardless of that, regardless of the good work that they're doing, more often than not, this service is inadequate for mm. the patient's needs, really, mm. isn't it? In here or generally? Well, in generally, in the, you know, in the real world. Well, it's, it's, it is, a, I mean, it's, there's a sort of ongoing debate about it, isn't there, at the moment? And I think it's hard to pick up a newspaper at the moment and not see something about the, the difficulties with the, the services. So, yeah, I think there is a lot of, um, I think there are a lot of problems with resources and cuts, absolutely. But I also think that there is something that's probably required about thinking a bit more creatively about early intervention, particularly around um, adolescent um, and child mental health services so that, you know, we're not picking up people at crisis point when they're in their kind of mid or late teens. My my sense is that some of those um, young people could have been highlighted, identified earlier. So I think it's, I think it is resources, but I think it is also something about how we're um, seeing uh, our mental health services. I think there is something still incredibly split off from physical health so it feels like this kind of two separate entities and I think part of the part of the journey and part of the work is to try and think about people in a more holistic way but yeah it's a it's it is a real I think it is a constantly um ongoing struggle and as a result I think that people in the people in the services will be undoubtedly stretched I don't think I mean it's a it's a lovely thing to be able to say that if you can't see someone for some other reason you would be able to pass on to a colleague I wonder how easy that is in the current climate to do that. We talked earlier about, you know, the book being character driven mm. and therapy driven. I guess I want to talk about how the book came about in the first place. So sure. at what point did you, you know, when did you decide you yes. were going to write a novel? I guess? Well, I have been writing for a long time, actually. And um, I think I had steered clear of writing anything to do with my work. So... You know, one of my books was in sort of, you know, 17th century Greece. Another book was somewhere else. You know, I think I sort of did everything I possibly could to avoid writing uh, something I knew very well. And I think it was partly, going back to your question about ethics, I think partly I didn't want a client with mental health issues to be at the kind of core of the book. And it was mm -hmm. only really when I sort of flipped the concept and thought I could make the protagonist a therapist who has her own Achilles heel that somehow the book started to sort of unroll for me, really. And I was very interested in exploring grief in some ways. And I suppose that's when I had that in my head and her as the protagonist, it kind of slotted together. Because obviously grief, not just bereavement, but grief is something that grief and loss finds its way very frequently into the consulting room. It could be it could be bereavement, but it could be loss of identity or loss of job, relationship, loss of a family member through uh, drugs or mental health. I mean, there's so many different forms of loss. So I, I was very um, conscious that that was quite a powerful emotion so that once I'd kind of put that together with the protagonist as a therapist, it sort of kind of, you know, rolled out in my head as a story quite quickly. So I think I probably do fit into that thing of the, you know, stick with what you know rather than uh, go around the houses with other things. 
Um, just a couple more things, and mm. I'll, I'll get you to, to read a bit sure. of, of, of the novel, if you would. Um, I want to talk about other writers that are an influence on you, but let's perhaps talk about... Well, let's generally, first of all, and then perhaps we can talk about this this type of novel in particular. Yeah. Oh, that's always a tricky one, isn't it? What have I... Um... What have I just read? In fact, I have just read, which isn't a novel, but it is about trauma. Uh, I've just read something called the um, Trauma Cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you, I think it's so actually, for the Welcome Prize. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, that. So I'm very. I mean, I'm very interested in psychological stuff, which is probably no surprise. And that doesn't have to be necessarily fiction. I do like a story, and I suppose the Trauma Trauma Cleaner is really interesting because it is about another person so it's a biography of the trauma cleaner but it's an extraordinary story I don't know if you've I don't know you've heard you obviously you've yeah. heard about it but it's an extraordinary story so that really struck me but also I think I'm very taken by stories where people have had these rather extraordinary lives and overcome or incorporated perhaps not overcome is not necessarily the right word but incorporated something very difficult and managed that in their life so that that's something that really um that really stayed with me. I've just I've just went, read that one recently. In fact, I was a bit late to the party on this one, but I've just read um, "Grief Is a Thing with Feathers," Max Porter, which I also like. You see, I, I'm obviously a trauma grief. I'm obviously drawn to these themes. What else have I read? Um, I, I I would say that I read widely. I don't think I'm particularly drawn to. I don't have a kind of couple of favourite authors that I could sort of pull out and say I'm. I always read their books, but I do. I, I do love kind of realistic psychology in fiction and non-fiction. So I, I think it's something about the kind of transformative journey of something that I'm really drawn to. To finish off, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you. OK, so I'm going to read um, a piece from the from the very beginning. On paper, Dan Griffin was nothing out of the ordinary. He was anxious. He was urgent. He was like any other patient we see at the trauma unit. Unremarkable was how I described him to the police. When they looked for answers in those early therapy sessions, they read about the bruise on his face, the terror in his voice and the flashbacks that were so visceral that they took his breath away. But there was nothing to hint at his capacity for violence, nothing at all to suggest what he was capable of. It took a while to understand that the question to ask wasn't why didn't I see it coming? But why didn't I move out of the way? It's a Friday afternoon in April when I see Dan for his first appointment. It's the end of a difficult week, an onslaught of new referrals, an email about budget cuts, and then that morning, the unexpected phone call about the death of a patient, Alfie Burgess. The hospice nurse is kind as she tells me what happened. Peaceful, she said, and surrounded by family. Then some other things I don't hear. You'll let the team know, is how she ends the call. Of course it should be me as head of department to tell them all, and in the past I'd happily rise to such leadership requests. It was something I was good at, competent, capable, and in control, spreading my arms wide to contain the distress of the department. But that day, in the run-up to Tom's birthday, my hand is shaking as I replace the receiver. It's a feeling that's been getting worse. The once fluttery sensation in the pit of my stomach has become a band of tension across my chest. It could be the death of anyone, a next-door neighbour's friend or even the story in the news, but when it's someone I know well, like Alfie, it tightens until it becomes hard to move. There's never a picture or image that forms in my head, just a creeping sense of dread about Tom. I try to focus on Alfie, on how I will tell the team, but my body is rigid, 
like it's gone into hiding. Tom's birthday has become an obsession. I, I knew it would. It did last year. Lately, almost any event can serve as a marker of time. The first autumn leaves, the first dusting of frost or the first smudge of purple and yellow crocuses. All small signs that the world is turning without him. But the day of his birth. His birthday. What mother doesn't want to transport herself back to the glorious cocoon of that moment, whatever the age of her child? There's a nervous kind of anticipation that I know will come to nothing. The date will come and go without him. The balloon of hope will deflate and sometimes the sheer effort required to pump myself back into shape simply feels too much. I've had days like this before and I know it will pass. However, for the moment, I am too full of it. If it was anyone else, any other member of my team, I'd tell them they shouldn't be at work. Go home, I'd say. Be kind to yourself. But for obvious reasons, home is the last place I want to be. That day I am like an overfull bath. Drip, drip, drip. I feel heavy with the weight of it, as if one the small request will send me sloshing and spilling out all over the floor. And yet still I hold up my hand for more. Another referral, an extra supervision group, a paper to present at a conference. Oh yes, I'll do it, I hear myself say. And I do it in the hope it'll fill the void. I'm not making excuses. There are no excuses. But my state of mind on the day I first meet Dan Griffin cannot be denied. Dan Griffin is my last patient that afternoon. My consulting room is round the corner from the waiting area and the walk to collect a patient takes about a minute, a journey I've made hundreds of times over the last 25 years. Usually, as I walk to collect a new referral, I spend a few moments clearing my head, orientating myself to the new patient and the process about to begin. Today I don't. I'd like to say I was thinking about Alfie and his parents, but that would be a lie. I walk slowly and deliberately, my eyes on those swimming pool blue carpet tiles. It's just as I pass the stairwell that I look up and see him in the waiting room at the end of the corridor. I stop and stare. Everything else falls away. He's hunched in the chair by the door, head in hands, hair hanging down over his fingers. I, I hear myself make a noise, a muffled sort of cry, and then a wave rolls gently through me. I feel suddenly light, elevated. He's grown his hair long again. David would hate it, but I'm pleased. One of the last times I saw him, he'd hacked it off completely, leaving long golden curls in the bathroom sink that made me want to weep. Now it's grown back down to his shoulders. It suits him long, I think, as I reach a hand to the wall to steady myself. As I move closer, I can see his donkey jacket, the one we bought him for Christmas, the one with the tartan lining. My heart is thumping now. There's a new shirt, one I don't recognise, and a red rucksack on his lap. On his feet... Doc Martin boots, always those black boots. The sight of them makes me smile. Tom, here you are, is what I think, or perhaps I say out loud. My chest rises and falls and I break into a clumsy run, startling the patients in the waiting room. Some look up, one of them is Tom. As he lifts his head, I feel a dull pain in my solar plexus, swift like a punch. It is not him. So I've been talking to Bev Thomas and we've been talking about her debut novel, A Good Enough Mother, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Bev, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe 
rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.